0: Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hannan. I'm your host, Nabil Hannan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Idan Plotnik.
1: Hi, Idan. Hi, Nabil. Thank you for having me.
0: Idan is the co-founder and CEO at Apiro. He is a serial entrepreneur and product strategist with nearly 20 years of experience in cybersecurity. Previously, Idan was the director of engineering at Microsoft following the acquisition of Aurato, where he served as the founder and CEO. So Idan, why don't we get started? Can you tell us by giving us a little bit more background in cybersecurity and how you got started?
1: Sure, thank you, Nabil. So I started. Uh, I think it's kind of cliche in arena on oh, the cybersecurity arena in Israel. I started at the IDF in a cybersecurity unit called Matzov. Then I had a, a consulting services company on the more on the offensive side. A lot of pen tests, security code review, threat model. and then I sold this company in 2011. Through one of the pen tests that I conducted at this company, I had an idea of identifying advanced persistent threats by analyzing develop or analyzing user behavior inside the network. And then I founded a startup called Erato, which was pioneer in the user and entity behavior analytics space. And I sold it to Microsoft early in 2015, like January 2015. And that's it. I started at Microsoft as a a director of engineering for two products, on-prem and cloud native product. That's it. I, I had an interesting, a very, very interesting time at Microsoft. I learned what it means to actually ship products at scale and what it means to actually develop secure products and go through the secure software development lifecycle.
0: That's fantastic. And congratulations on that. Not a lot of uh, startups have the type of success you had with Arato. And now with Apiro, you guys are making a lot of headlines and news everywhere you go and show your products and hawk your wares. So would love to understand why you started Apiro and maybe give us a little bit more of the origin story.
1: Sure, sure. It's, it's a long story. I will try to make it shorter. <laughs> when you work in an enterprise and you need to ship products in a secure way you go through a lot of manual processes okay so you start by running a risk assessment questionnaires so basically map what you have and and what are the changes that you have made to the application before delivering to your customers and based on it's it's a manual Uh, You know, based on self-attestation, you ask questions like, do you expose PII data of customers? How many APIs did you develop? Are they internet-facing? And so on and so forth. And the problem is that there is no automatic process to ensure that what you actually answered is correlated to the code itself. And I think this is the the fundamental problem in in the secure software development lifecycle. And based on, on this manual process, you prioritize the next steps, like on what you need to run pen tests or or on what you need to run a threat models or compliance reviews or security code review. The next problem, which is, I think, this is the biggest problem cloud native application security industry today is the remediation part from all the phases in the uh, secure software development lifecycle. Eventually you get findings. Someone needs to prioritize them. Someone needs to actually remediate them. And now you have kind of a conflict between AppSec engineer and the developer development team who actually owns the remediation or responsible for the remediation. And they don't understand the security practices. So the AppSec, based on BISM, it's 1 to 200 developers. This is the ratio. Now it creates a lot of conflicts or a lot of work that that the AppSec needs to do, a lot of work that the developers need to do. And this is basically why we founded Apiro. We founded Apiro to automatically assess the risk of your code while developing as part of the development process before you ship to customers. And then... To automatically help the developers remediate these risks early in the development process at the commit phase, at the pull request phase, even before you even start the, the CI CD pipeline. Okay, before you deploy your code to the cloud. And and this is basically the pain or the challenges. That I, I personally felt at Microsoft, as I said, from the beginning, from analyzing or assessing the risk through the prioritization of all the findings and then remediating it, do it in a continuous manner is real challenge because we moved from waterfall to agile. We started delivering code to production on a weekly basis. And as I said, this is my real challenge that I felt at Microsoft uh, because it was kind of a blocker. Instead of saying to my boss at Microsoft, hey, we're moving much faster, it was the opposite. I told him we need to stop the release because we found these types of findings and I don't have any people to remediate the risk and prioritize this is why we started the payroll from the beginning
0: that's awesome and you know what you mentioned here is a very common challenge a lot of organizations have because especially anyone that's building software, right? Every client has their own version of the risk assessment questionnaire, the vendor questionnaire, and and so on and so forth. That makes it quite challenging. And being able to do that in automated or systemic way or consistent way every time becomes quite challenging. So that's great to hear. And definitely, it's a problem that has a, a you know that needs to be addressed in the industry today. So Netspy and Apiro, we recently formed a partnership to deliver contextual pen testing. And I would love to understand from you where you think the industry is shifting and why there is this need for better understanding and getting more context on how software has changed to apply that depend testing and why you think that may be critical.
1: Yes, for I I just want to emphasize one thing. It's not only the risk assessment part. You must provide a systematic way across the entire SDLC, across assessing the risk, prioritizing it, and remediating it in one platform. And, And this is what we brought to the industry. Now, back to your question. One of the biggest challenges for our customers our mutual customers right now, is I don't want to run a pen test only once a year. I know that it's super valuable to conduct a pen test throughout the development lifecycle. And now the question is on what? I don't want to spend time for the pen tester and for the development team and for the appsec to run priority or scoping calls Every release, we want to automatically identify, let's call them the crown jewels features that introduces risk to the application. And we want to identify these features early as we can and then alert to NetSpine in an automatic way so they can start the pen testing only on, you know, for example, these sensitive APIs that exposes PI data or only on logic change on the authorization module. And then it's a win-win situation because on one hand, you reduce the costs of engineers because you're not bombard them with questions about what you've changed this release and when and where is it in the code and what are the URLs for these APIs and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, reduce the costs of the Pentest team because you allow them focus on the most critical assets on every release. This is a win-win situation for, I will say, the CIO and the CISOs, but once the doubt, it's for the development teams and the security. I think this makes or this changed the game, okay? Because when you make the pen testing process much more efficient and effective, as you know, cannot replace the human brain with a with machine. This is why you really need someone to think about the attack scenarios. So this is what Pure and NetSpy are bringing to customers, the efficiency and the effectiveness or pen testing and reducing costs for both the security and the engineering team by focusing the pen testers on the most risky assets for every release and even every pull requests in the agile development teams that we are working? With. So it's
0: important to understand, too, that currently the, the traditional way of pen testing before doing this contextual testing is really been doing a full deep dive test on an application. And typically, you know, the cadence we've been seeing is annual testing or annual requirements. Maybe that's driven by some sort of a compliance pressure or, or you know, regulatory need. Now, I think everybody understands why it would be valuable to test an application multiple times and not just once a year, especially if it's going through a lot of changes multiple times in a year. Now, the challenge becomes doing those tests can often be very expensive because of the human element to it. So I think that's why I want to just highlight the contextual testing really allows the pen tester, and I'm thinking from a tester's perspective, to hone in and focus on just the areas where change has happened. And often, I think the information provided by a tool like Apiro can also allow them to understand if certain change is risky versus certain change is not risky, depending on what type of data it's touching, what type of functionality it's touching, and and getting more
1: context around the changes themselves. Absolutely. Let, let's double click on that for a second. So when you move to agile, you have changes on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And this is this is the thing that you need to differentiate between changes that are not risky to the organization or to the business versus the ones that are actually introduces a potential risk to the business again as as we we said earlier it can be an api that exposes pi data it can be authorization logic change and it can be i don't know a, a module that's responsible for you know transferring money in a trading system and and these are the changes that you need to automatically identify and and this is Part of the technology that we developed at Piro that helps the pen tester become much more contextual and focus on the uh, risky areas on the code, and with the same budget that you have today, you can do much more and reduce the risks in an efficient way and by the way we have numbers to prove it from the customers that we are working with. and this is a big thing for small and large enterprises today
0: yeah no that's that's a great point i like i like using analogies often when i when i talk about these things and the way it, it you know this reminds me is when i go see my doctor for my annual physical right they go through everything they talk about how am i sleeping what am i eating did i gain weight you know did i do i feel better do i feel worse and they go through a whole different thing which kind of reminds me of like a annual pen test but then when i show up at my doctor because i hurt my foot you know i i they don't go and ask me at all that level of detail every time they go ahead and have me x-ray my foot to figure out what the problem is or what the risk might be and then move on right so i think i think that's the analogy that comes to mind. (laughs) So kind of going along with uh, a lot of the innovative work that you guys are doing, uh, a big announcement came out recently where you guys launched the dependency combobulator. Can you talk a little bit more about the toolkit itself and just in general why open source software risk is is so important and how people need to think about it?
1: You can't look at Open source as, as one dimension for application as in an application security. You must take into consideration the application code, the infrastructure as code, uh, the open source code, and also the cloud infrastructure that the application is eventually running on. Um, regarding the Pansy Bobulator, this is one of the attack. The, I think the most dangerous attack vectors today. Um, The the attack called dependency confusion, where you are using an internal dependency without a proper naming convention. And then the attacker can go to public package managers and use the same name. And your computer, when you can't reach your internal artifactory or package manager, then it will automatically fall back and access the package manager in the internet. And then your uh, computer will actually fetch or download the malicious dependency with, with the malicious code, a huge problem for organizations. Uh, but by the way, the guy that founded the dependency confusion attack, he suddenly got HTTP requests from within Microsoft network Apple, Google, and other enterprises because he found some internal packages while browsing a few websites, just wanted to play with the concept and added the same packages with the same name to the public repository and suddenly boom. And this is why we said, you know, we need to help the community and provide them an open source framework that they can extend. So they can run it from their CLI or they can run it from their CICD pipeline For every internal dependency. They can automatically go and search for external package managers and identify if you have packages with the same name and alert. And we are also doing some comparison or doing risk score, providing risk score for every package based on the contribution and the changes and other things. So, I think that contributing to the open source community is a super important initiative that we are doing and we are going to release more and more open source tools that will help the uh, appsec community and this was the, the the first, you know, the first one, the first tool, but we will release more and more tools like that.
0: No, that's fantastic. And you know, I always love seeing how organizations are contributing to the broader community with, you know, open source tools and uh, solving problems that are very widespread. So it was really interesting to see this as well. Now, speaking of problems that are really widespread, I would like to talk to you a little bit more about log4j and the log4shell issue. And and most importantly, would love to understand your perspective, not on what the vulnerability is. I think there's been enough talk about the vulnerability itself, but would un- want to understand what are some things from your perspective people need to be thinking about so that the next time a similar issue comes out, which we know it will, right? It you know, it happened with Struts, now it happened with Log4J. Let's hope we've learned our lesson now and we can figure out how to deal with these types of issues in the future. As the you know, industry expert and a practitioner. Would love to understand from you what can people do and what can organizations do to be better prepared for a similar vulnerability like lock 4 shell in the wild that may have a widespread impact.
1: Let's divide the the remediation process uh, for in in you know in a few steps. I think what we have learned from, you know, working with customers is that they don't have an inventory. Like (laughs) there is kind of a a mess around all the source control managers. It's, I want to, I want to, I want to use the word cacophony. Okay. Because we, we have customers with source control managers with code that is written in, you know, in the last 20 years. And nobody knows what's going on there nobody scans the history and say these are the technologies that we have these are the components so first and foremost establish inventory across all your code assets okay and this inventory must be updated not based on a manual attestation not based on people okay uh, it must be automatically updated for every code commit. And by the way, this is one of the, again, I, I don't want to talk more about Apiro and our solution, but but we started from there. We started from building an inventory because we learned that it's such a big problem for customers that they don't have the visibility. So what is an inventory, for example? I want in 10 seconds, I want to say, where do I have log4j that is actually in use in the code? Not as imported into the code, but actually in used in, in the applications. I want to learn and I want to filter only the high business impact applications. And I want only these that are exposed to the internet. And I can go on and on and on. Only these with uh, PII data and and other things. I want to filter across all the noise. And say these are the top five applications that I need to remediate immediately. And now click on a button, upgrade the dependency, and immediately deploy to production. And this is, I think, these are the ways that I wanted to, to like break down the process. First, have an inventory. Second, prioritize all the applications, but not again, you must have the context of the business impact of where it's being deployed, when you shipped the log4j, who is the right developer to talk to, and so on and so forth. And lastly, the remediation part, you want to make sure that it will not break anything in your application. So you need to understand who is the right person, as I said, that you need to talk to. Say, This is the right version that we need to upgrade, and it's a mutual work for the AppSec, the DevOps, and the developers to remediate it as fast as you can. So I think from our point of view, the the essence is to, to build the inventory and be able to filter on top of the inventory, and this is what we learned from Log4j.
0: I think there's another critical step in between those two items, right? Between the identification and remediation is the mitigation process. So I think it's critical to build that initial inventory as a step one or be able to have that inventory at your fingertips step one so that you can put other controls in place to ensure that those vulnerabilities where they exist are not getting exploited while you go work on patching or updating or, you know, upgrading your systems. Because what I've seen at fairly large organizations is even if you know where the the, the software components are, upgrading is not often as straightforward as it could be, because there may be other dependencies, they need to do regression testing, they need to ensure other features aren't breaking and so on, or it might be legacy systems that cannot immediately be upgraded anyways. So from that perspective, I feel like there may be another step in between, which is once you've identified your inventory, at least that allows you to intelligently go and block maybe using a web app firewall or, or some other technology to prevent attackers from exploiting that vulnerability immediately and then get yourself some more runway to go and figure out how to fix the issues that you have, especially where they are.
1: I totally agree. And while you, are, you mentioned this phase, now I have another important thing to, to add on top of that is that we decided in one of the customers, of course, I, I, I I, I can't mention the name, but so we decided to block any pull request with a vulnerable log4j package. So this is another governance step that you need to do early in the development process. You need to go from both ways, from the left side and from the right side. As you said, on the right side, you need to go to your WAF, and to your other security controls out there block the uh, exploitation of the vulnerability. but you on the on the left side you need to identify where and who is the right person to talk to. but in the middle, you know the boundary um, you know the pull request for a second, you, you need to stop the developers immediately so they will not add another risks to the applications. Because this will be an infinite loop and, and, you know, you can fix, but you can get new risks every day. So you must have the governance with blocking capabilities throughout the development lifecycle.
0: So if I can maybe summarize that, because we jumped around a little bit, um, then we've, I think we've both agreed on four steps. The first step is the inventory and, and identifying where the vulnerable components are. The second piece is protection. So if you can protect yourself or your software from being attacked and exploited by attackers from the outside. The third step being what I would call prevention, which is preventing developers to do something else in addition or get access to the affected software to make more additional changes until you know how to deal with the critical issue and the last one is remediation step number 4 but ultimately you know the the thing that it comes down to is back to basics right if you don't have that initial inventory that is automated and happening systemically across your organization and across all the different software that is being developed you cannot get to any of the other steps realistically, maybe you can get to protect by saying, I want to protect everything I have with a firewall, but that's not really scalable long-term and that's not really the right way to approach it or in a targeted. So, Idan, as we like to do on this podcast, we like to talk to people not only about security stuff, even though most people we talk to are very excited about security, we like to talk to them about non-security and non-work-related items too, so I know that um, you and I have talked about our dogs uh, in particular before, and your dog has a unique history and a very interesting background on how uh, he was named. So can you tell us a little bit more about Kay and and why you named him that, and and how you know you guys got him?
1: Sure, I will say my second kid uh, out of three, K. Kay-
0: which one of those three are best behaved is,
1: is the most is important
0: question.
1: <laughs> so K is a German shepherd. We called K because uh, we in Erato we started analyzing Kerberos. Kerberos is the authentication protocol, which is named by Cerberus, the uh, you know, the three-headed dog for the that basically Uh, guard the underground so so this is why we called him k super energetic such a a great dog that's it we we brought him when we were living in in new york after the you know my my birth of my first daughter we brought him like a week after it was fun again you you need to meet him to understand how how much energy he has you know and he's such a positive dog uh, so this is Kay, and this is why we called him K. <laughs>
0: now, there is a specific type of breed that he is, right? He's not a traditional German Shepherd. There was some, some uniqueness to the breed itself.
1: Yes, it's a long-coated German Shepherd. He has a lot of air.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fluff. Awesome. And then I know that you're also really into surfing. Can you share a little bit about maybe some of your favorite surfing spots or if there are any stories that you have that are very interesting and, and near and dear to your heart
1: sure from the moment i started the apuro uh, i don't really have time to surf but i'm i'm surfing i'm doing kite surf and wave surfing and even stand up paddle in in uh, big waves i most like interesting place i've ever been or surfing in was the Dominican Republic. Beautiful places I've ever been. I surfed there and I, with, with my kite and I jumped and I found myself literally on a tree and I had to <laughs> release the kite and find myself down by myself. Uh, but, but this is basically my, my memories from the Dominican Republic and, and it's an amazing place to be.
0: You're quite brave. I mean, I've seen videos of kite surfers jumping over houses and, you know, little, you know, little huts and stuff on the beach and it's quite impressive what they do. So, I'm sure you were having one of those moments too, which is which is fantastic. And Dominican Republic is on my bucket list of one of the places I want to go to sooner rather than later. So, I'm excited and glad to hear that as well. I'll have to get some notes from you on on where to go when I'm when I'm
1: there. Great. I, I would love to give you and, and you need to share uh, your experience uh, in, in our next uh, call.
0: Absolutely. Well, Idan, thank you so much. Um, it was, it's always fun and, and a true pleasure. Every time I talk to you, I learn new things. And um, you know, you're one of the most intelligent and charismatic people I've talked to in the AppSec space. So it's really nice to always speak to you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Hopefully we can do that in person next time.
1: Thank you very, very much, Nabil, for having me and looking forward, uh, you know, to to the next time. Thank you.
0: This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.